You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am here for another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored, joined by, of course, my two delightful, lovely, and fantabulous colleagues, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And my equally as lovely, fantabulous, and wonderful colleague, Dr. Susan Hudson from the uh, Texas Fertility Center. I love being fantabulous. <laughs> I mean, everybody should be fantabulous at least once a week, just for the hell of it. Um, and I am super, super excited about our guest this week because not only is she beautiful and stunning and witty and charming and all of the delightful adjectives that and I fantabulous and fantabulous. Of course, I mean, that goes without saying, um, but Dr. Shannon Ho is here with us today. She is a maternal fetal medicine specialist at the maternal fetal medicine group at Ohio Health, which is um, a really phenomenal, huge group in Columbus, Ohio. And more importantly to me, she is one of my former co-residents. And so we went through a really grueling four years together at Metro Health and the Cleveland Clinic. And, and so, um, so it is pretty fabulous to have Shannon here in both in the professional world and because I just love hearing her voice. So thank you for joining us, Shannon. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. I was really excited and pumped to be part of the program. Thank you. Well, we are just super excited to to have you here. And we were just talking about your practice, which sounds like it is absolutely ginormous. I mean, especially for an MFM group where, at least in my context, like I don't think I know of very many groups that are over four or five, six people or so. Yeah, that's huge. 10 people, right? Yes. We just hired our 10th, looking possibly for the 11th uh, partner um, next year. So we have the honor and privilege of of touching um, a lot of pregnant women um, and helping them throughout their pregnancies. And we see a wide variety of patients as well. And one of our real important components is we see a lot of patients who've had fertility treatment. So this is right in our wheelhouse. And we we always like it when you guys get them um, tucked in and get things going. And then a lot of times we step in and kind of help with the next phase of care. When I hear that, though, it kind of makes me think, okay, but I don't want to send you tri- triplets or, or or heaven forbid quadruplets. When I say, when, when we send people to you, usually we're kind of nervous when we send them to you. We're like, oh, please let everything turn out okay. <laughs> well, I know. I know. We're, we, we're always happy to see multiples. That's, that's always in our wheelhouse. <laughs> and we're, we are real comfortable with that. Um, but yeah, I have some of the REIs here. They're kind of like, take good care of them. I'm passing the baton. And so... <laughs> That's right. So Shannon, what what else do you do outside of your doctor hat? Yes. Um, So I love to garden. I'm an avid gardener. I got into English roses as a matter of course. Mm. Wow. Mainly because they have less thorns and they're less prickly, but I found I just, I love to nurture and love things. And so, you know, this kind of needy plant just appealed to me. I was going to say, aren't roses are some of the hardest plants to grow, right? Because they have all kinds of bugs and they're very particular and... Yeah, kind of finicky, kind of, um, you know, um, they have to have just the right balance of everything, but it's it's a labor of love and I enjoy it. I have three boys as well. So they are usually out, you know, 
and I use air quotes here, helping me. So <laughs> sometimes uh, their help hurts. So if you're a plant here on the old, uh, homestead, you got to be kind of tough. So do you grow anything other than roses? You know, I've really not met a plant I don't enjoy. So I have a big mix of perennials because albeit roses are great, but you know, they kind of have a flush and then they're gone. So yeah. that would be more if that was, you know, the only plant. But I do a lot of perennials and annuals and I also have a little garden, I'm mainly focused on tomatoes and peppers and a few eggplants and things like that thrown in there. So oh, wow. I'm also the tomato lady of the cul-de-sac. It never fails me <laughs> like right at once. And so I'm like, hey, you want a tomato? <laughs> I think you don't want a tomato. How about a pepper? Can I give you a pepper? So <laughs> you're a vegetable pusher. That's what you are. You are a vegetable pusher. I am. <laughs> I'm not very good at growing vegetables, but it's kind of a long story, but it's sort of a community garden that I'm working with a a master gardener and he's very interested in getting rare seeds. So he has this rare seed catalog and literally, I mean, he told me what to do. He and my, my daughter and I, and he literally showed us how to plant the tom- these tomatoes from seed. And of course, he did all the other work. He like nurtured them and watered them and put them under the grow light. So we actually got to see them, you know, sprout up and produce tomatoes. It was pretty cool. <laughs> did the tomatoes taste better than other garden variety? They really did. You know, they were just... They always do. They were really rare breeds, like out of this special seed catalog. And you literally got, I mean, tomato seeds that you planted. And so... I felt like I was, you know, working with like Hope Diamonds or something, you know, when we were planting these seeds, I didn't want to drop a seed anywhere. So, <laughs> but it was cool. It was, yeah, they were delicious. We didn't eat, we ate a few of them. I got a few of them and they were really good. Yeah. I kill succulents. Carrie and I are in the same house. <laughs> no, you don't. You grow, you grow succulents, Carrie. You, t- you said you grew a lot of them. Did you lie? I was doing really fabulous. And then the, we hit a couple of heat waves and we're getting smoke cr- from the California wildfires. And so oh, the air yeah. quality is for crap. Um, and and we've, we've had these big bursts of high heat, like higher than typical for here. And mm-hmm. so now out of my probably some 50 succulent plants that I planted maybe a year ago, which of course are all still small because they grow slowly, but I have maybe a handful left. Like all the poor little guys died. My inside ones are still alive. Thriving is a strong word, but they are a lot. <laughs> um, but my out- outside ones are just cranky as all hell. And I, I think most of them are not going to come back, sadly. As a side note, though, Carrie, every time I, Sunday is my watering day. And every time I grow to wa- go to water my plants now on Sundays, when I water the succulents, I hear your little voice going, water is the enemy for succulents. I keep hearing that. <laughs> so I put just a little less water than I was going to otherwise. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, they probably get uh, far more in Nashville just from the ambient air and rain oh, and yeah. humidity and all that stuff than they certainly than they do in Vegas. Yeah. Um, but all right. So Susan, do you have our question of the day? I do. I do. Um, so our question is, would I make things extremely awkward at the fertility clinic that I'm using if I asked for a different IVF nurse uh, assigned to me? I am finished with stimulation and I'm dreading having to work with her during the FET cycle. My IVF nurse is knowledgeable and experienced, but she's very lacking in compassion or bedside manner. She's always in a rush and it just seems like I'm an item on her checklist to get through. I've seen other nurses during my stimulation cycle and they were also kind of explained what to expect. I think I have called to ask her questions two or three times during this entire process and she seems very annoyed with me every time. 
when I asked her how to calculate a due date after an FET cycle, she said that the embryo transfer wouldn't necessarily be successful. So maybe I don't need to estimate the due date. The clinic does seem understaffed, so I'm sure that doesn't help her mood. My nurse went on vacation during the stem cyclones. I was having to repeatedly call to figure out which medications to take and what time to take my trigger shot. Maybe she should, she didn't remember to hand over my file to someone else since there are a couple of days where I had to try and find somebody to talk to, finally getting someone on the phone as the office was closing. One of those days, a nurse said I needed an extra dose of medication, but it was so late in the date that I couldn't get it overnighted in time. Luckily, they had one single syringe of what I needed in the office. It was an awful week. Oh, my heart goes out to this patient. That sucks. What do you think, Abby? Well, I think, you know, not everybody clicks with everybody else. And, you know, unfortunately, we're all human and things happen. And so, you know, I just think if it's a doctor or a nurse you don't click with, you probably ought to find somebody else. And I think offices are different in how they do this, but we're pretty open to, you know, if you don't click with a nurse, let us know and we'll we'll put you with another nurse. Or if, you know, if you had a bad experience with that nurse, we'll let you go with another nurse. And the same thing, even with doctors. I mean, you know, we would rather keep you at our practice and let you, you know, switch to a different doctor that you like better. Um, and we don't we don't hold it against you or anything. So, yeah, I think it, it would be perfectly fine to ask to switch to a different nurse. I completely agree. I, I mean, I think if there's somebody else for you to switch to, and especially if there was somebody that you worked well with when she was absent and you can specifically say, hey, can I work with somebody like this? I think everybody in every clinic recognizes that some people get along with some people and some people don't. I always, as much as I never want to get quote constructive criticism, I always appreciate it though, because I can't fix things that I'm not aware of. Yeah. It's always, yeah, it's always hard to get criticism for sure, but it's, it's always hard to get it, but I would rather hear about it and be able to address it than necessarily it to be happening over and over. And that the only time I would ever find out about it is when it's on a Google review. I would much rather have the chance to make the rest of your experience better and to be able to address with my um, staff, hey, maybe this interaction wasn't the best, you know, and use it as a as a learning um, and education tool. Mm-hmm. And nurses get burnt out too. I mean, this is a demanding field for everybody who's in it on both sides of, of the equation. And some of the most telling things that we have been able to enact to help our staff have been when, when we get repeated comments about someone that we ordinarily never get a repeated comment about that tells us like, okay, we need, we need to do something, whether it's hire another person or switch workloads or whatever it may be. It's, it's actually a really important piece of information for us, not just for you and your care, but to make sure that all of our patients are getting good care. So, right. mm-hmm. um, you know, as always be polite and be mindful about it and say, you know, I really don't want to, I don't want to trash anybody. I just think that the, I need a little bit more warm and fuzzy in order to help me get through this. And so could I maybe work with someone else? Now, as always, listen for subtext because in every clinic, there's always going to be a couple nurses who are the most experienced, who really know what they're doing and who can be very helpful in particular patient scenarios where the doc knows I'm going to be throwing more curveballs and this nurse is going to handle it better. And so even if they are not necessarily the warm and fuzziest. If they're medically going to get you there, that's always something to think about. So, you know, if your doctor seems resistant, you may want to listen for that subtext because ultimately the goal is to get you where you want to be through your IVF cycle and all that. And, you know, with compassion and perfectly executed is the ideal, but, but certainly talk about it with your doctor. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Totally agree. 
All right. So today we are going to be talking with um, the lovely Dr. Ho about what to expect after you have your IVF pregnancy established. So you have made it all the way through to that, you know, eight week point, 10 week point, whatever point it is that your REI's office have said, good luck, Godspeed. We've gotten you as far as we can go. You're off to your OBGYN. And so Shannon is a maternal fetal medicine doc has spent not only the four years in OBGYN residency that all of us spend, but where Susan and Abby and I went to do three years of infertility training. She went to three years of dealing with the hardest, craziest pregnancy complications that you can imagine. And so I really remember when we were in residency, we had this night float system. So someone would be on the night shift and someone would be on the day shift. And I loved coming on the day shift after Dr. Ho, because she had everything figured out for me. (laughs) It's like a true MFM, right? True MFM. Like she would just, all these disasters would gravitate to her. And then she would find out what was going on and she would fix them. And she would hand me this beautiful plan so that this REI minded resident who like, I was totally fine at all the basic obstetrics, but good God woman. I remember the cases you used to hand to me and I'm like, Oh, thank God Shannon is on because I could hand you anything and you would be fine. And you would (laughs) hand it back to me. Just all right, obedient. This is what you're going to do. And then I would say, yes, ma'am. And, um, and it would be great. So thank you for coming with us today. And what, when you get someone who's coming from a fertility office and let's, for the moment, let's just start with basic pregnancy. So someone who doesn't have any of the huge diagnoses that you, that automatically, you know, unequivocally gets sent you. But when you get someone who's conceived after IVF, how do you approach that pregnancy? Yeah. Thank you again for having me. It's my pleasure. I appreciate all uh, my REI colleagues. Um, You guys mean the world uh, to me and you, um, I had to walk a personal journey of having some infertility. I had imagined that, you know, when I was ready to get pregnant, I would get pregnant, but lo and behold, it it didn't happen. And so um, we ended up having to kind of do the full court push and we kind of got up to IVF and then we had experienced multiple miscarriages and then kind of took a break and then ended up having spontaneous twins. Does that really happen? Spontaneous twins? (laughs) (laughs) I know the rare bird that it is. And so I um, see a lot of the IVF patients because at the time, you know, it felt like the worst thing in the world that was happening. And unless you have walked through those shoes and had those trials and tribulations, you just kind of don't understand. So I end up getting a, a lot of the, the IVF patients because I think I have that kind of that um, experience. And I think that's comforting to them to know that, hey, I'm not alone. Somebody else has been through this and they understand, you know, when I'm having my crazy kind of neurotic moments that, you know, it's okay. And so, you know, I typically just kind of start off and kind of give them just a, a general overview, you know, I do um, slightly touch on that we do see some more kind of first trimester losses in our IVF patients. And I would like to interject, are we meaning truly IVF patients or any of our patients who have conceived after a history of infertility? So I get both um, in my practice. Because both are considered high risk. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, kind of, you know, I'm a big goal setter. So I say, you know, we could get to that, you know, second trimester, we tend not to see an increase in loss after the second trimester. I do touch on that, you know, we do see more of the monozygotic twinning um, in our IVF patients. Um, and that would include the monochorionic diamniotic and some of the um, mono-mono twins as well. So oh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> so in English terms for a non-medical lister, 
what does monozygotic dichorionic, what does all that mean? That's the set of twins. So you have one placenta and two separate sacs. Um, and then the one that kind of makes all of us clutch our pearls and sweat a little bit is that one placenta, one sac situation. Um, and so I don't belabor this point, but I do think it's important to understand kind of what you're getting yourself into, especially when I get these patients, you know, at eight to 10 weeks. Um, we have um, some talk about that. And then I usually kind of break it down into maternal and fetal issues moving forward because my job is to kind of put in a roadmap and a plan so that they are OBGYN and the patient, they feel comfortable and they kind of have a, a roadmap for where we're going and where we're heading, which um, I tell all my patients, my end game is I want you to go home happy and healthy and I want you to take home a happy, healthy baby. And so however we got to do that, let's do it. So Shannon, in your practice, and I would say most maternal fetal medicine practices, they're kind of like fertility doctors in that you guys don't actually deliver babies much, correct? Typically, yes. If I have been called in, there's something disastrous that has happened. <laughs> I was going to say. Most of my patients are like, I love you, Dr. Ho, but I don't want to see you. I will send you a picture. Yes. Or... So you're working in conjunction with their primary OB-GYN. Absolutely. So I think it's important to honor that relationship as well. So you tend to kind of you get a, a, a lot of love in our system because you have your general OBGYN, then you also have your MFM and you know, then you've had your REI. So you have a, a big team behind you and everybody's rooting for your success and trying to do anything and everything we can to get you to that finish line, which is a happy, healthy baby. So how frequently do patients kind of bounce? And I'm sure it depends a lot on what the situation is, but how do you normally kind of have patients bounce back and forth? Do they see you one time and then a month later they see their OBGYN or how does, how does that usually work? Like with diabetes or something like that, for example. So um, for instance, if it was like a gestational diabetic patient, um, a lot of times these are patients who have never had diabetes who will come and meet with us for a consult or kind of get them looped into the system of how to report their sugars things like that and help with the ultrasound standpoint of checking for fetal overgrowth, extra fluid around the baby, polyhydramnios. And they will kind of do those ultrasound appointments with us and then reach out to our office either through our electronic medical record or they could call us with their blood sugars. And then we will kind of give them recommendations and guidance. And then when it comes to the delivery portion of it, we will make recommendations to their OBGYN as well. So there's a lot of kind of we own the ultrasound component of it. We own kind of making the the plan for how we're going to manage this pregnancy and any of the complications that may arise in the pregnancy. Uh, but it's, it's truly a, a team effort. So I get a lot of patients who are understandably anxious when they come and um, we'll send a decent percentage of them for preconception counseling with you guys just so they kind of know. And that's particularly if they're 40 or older, you know, obviously if they have any other coexisting medical problems like diabetes or blood pressure or something where I know they're going to land in your, your lap at some point, I'll send them for preconception counseling. What, what do you tell them at that visit of someone who's like 40 or older and looking to fertility treatment to get pregnant? So again, you know, you could totally do it. I use the analogy of it's like having um, an antique car and you're driving between um, Cleveland and Columbus it will get you to both destinations. Now, you may need to check the oil more frequently. You may need to rotate the tires. I don't know if we should use that analogy with our patients. I don't know how they'd like that very well, but I like it. That's an interesting analogy. You can buy a brand new Escalade and drive straight there too, albeit, you know, the, the young 20-something that just, you know, 
has you no know, problems with fertility, seems to get um, pregnant at the drop of a hat. So you can get to the destination. I just tell them they have to be prepared that there's going to be a lot more stop gaps and check-ins to ensure maternal well-being as well as fetal well-being. And what's the oldest patient that you would recommend that it's still safe to get pregnancy? And, and what are some things that would make you think it's not safe for somebody to get pregnant? So we actually have a very large Somali population here in Columbus. So I have some moms who have been upwards of 58, 59 years old that wow. have been spontaneously getting pregnant. And, you know, they're like, oh, well, I mean, my mom was like 56 when she had me. What's the big deal? And I'm kind of like, you know, big eyes, like, oh, my word, I couldn't imagine. So we, we have a, a gamut of age ranges that we take care of in our practice. You know, some of the really hard stops for me would be if there is kidney failure. I don't recommend that those patients attempt pregnancy. Certain cardiac issues, really uncontrolled pulmonary hypertension. That's a, a real no-go for me. Poorly controlled diabetes, if they're willing to work and put in that work and get that diabetes under control, I'm not absolutely opposed to that. But again, diabetes kind of feeds in and you can have a lot of renal, I meaning kidney issues, a lot of cardiac issues. What are your thoughts on multiple C-sections? Yeah, you know, it's the nature of the beast is the way I kind of look at it. And, you know, I'm thankful that we're in a, a place where we can deliver babies safely outside of just the old, you know, routine vaginal delivery. And uh, the fact of the matter is, and the way we practice, I mean, people are having more and more C-sections. I do think it's important to try to look for some of the things that can be associated with multiple C-sections, like accreta, meaning the placenta kind of growing into the uterine wall abnormally. And this is where I think you you know, MFM really comes into play. And I think if patients have had multiple C-sections, it's always good to send them in. Let us do our level two ultrasound, take a good look and see kind of what's going on with that placenta. A lot of times I bring these patients back because the placenta is not a static creature. It changes and evolves. And what it looks like at 18 weeks, you might not be getting the same thing at 32 to 34 weeks. So again, you know, I just recognize it's kind of... it multiple C-sections, they're, they're here to stay. It's not going away. And we just need to make sure that, again, moms are safe and kind of help their team look for any of the clues that can indicate something abnormal is going on because knowledge is power. And when you know better, you do better. And if you know there's a chance that that placenta might not come out the way it should, it makes a world of difference in maternal outcomes if the team is prepped and ready for that. How do you approach Shannon? I get I get a lot of ladies, usually in the 45 to 50 range, who have they either have embryos made previously or they're using a donor um, for eggs and and they're pushing really hard. And this and this is one of the biggest um, struggles that I have is they're pushing really hard to transfer two embryos. And a lot of times these are made from donor eggs. They're genetically tested. And so we know that the chance of both of them sticking is really high. And I tend to come down. I mean, you know, you know, my husband, you know, that my goal is to keep my patients and his patients hundred percent separated in this world, because I don't want anybody landing in the pediatric ICU with, with Mark. And so they ask a lot like, well, can you transfer two? Um, because if we wait another, let's say year after having the first one, then we're going to have all these complications. And I'm like, 
I would rather you not have two at the same time, plus be 48, because I'm worried about compounding things. I'd rather you have a baby at 48 and a baby at 49, 49 and a half and, and click through it that way rather than pile up with twins. But, um, but what's your, like, how do you approach those questions? It's interesting. Just being 48 does predispose you to a lot more maternal issues. Um, preeclampsia is the most common. Um, that's one of the most common causes of um, preterm delivery is um, that disorder of pregnancy. And so to your point, Carrie, you know, that risk goes up the more fetuses you put in there, the more placental tissue you have in there. So you're going to have a higher risk of preeclampsia. You're going to have a higher risk of gestational diabetes. So it's not without its issues having multiples. That being said, in my world, twins, really no big deal. Like we we don't really start batting an eye till we start getting some of the the higher order multiples, you know, getting up in quads and things like that. That's when we start getting uh, a little nervous. Having had twins and having had a singleton, I tell all my patients one at a time is definitely the way to go. It's much easier to carry one than it is to carry two. Um, and you just have a lot less um, pain and suffering. And, you know, you you ha- you get a lot further along typically um, with the, the singleton. So singleton is hands down the ideal setup. I think that that's where you have the best real estate for that placenta to set up shop. You have the most room for baby to grow. You cut down on your complications of preeclampsia, gestational di- diabetes, That being said, though, if you do land yourself in the market of multiples through no fault of your own, we can still take care of you. It's no problem. Twins, we're really comfortable with that. That that doesn't really drive things into the kind of danger zone. Starting getting up triplets, quads, though, that's dangerous territory for sure. Shannon, how often do you see cardiac issues, specifically cardiomyopathy, where the heart muscle just can't pump very well? Some of our MFMs have told me that sometimes even with twins and not uh, not infrequently with triplets and quadruplets, that long term, even maybe a year or two after the baby's deliver, that they see cardiomyopathy in those patients where the heart muscle just doesn't pump very well. Is that something you guys see very commonly with multiples? We can see that, you know, with twins, every pregnant woman has an expansion of their blood volume by at least half. And you get a little bit extra with the additional fetuses that are in there. So you get a little over half. And so that definitely does put a a stress on the maternal heart. So anyone who had any kind of underlying cardiac issues, that's definitely going to exacerbate and really open that door and make that really um, much more pronounced. We are also seeing a lot of pretty aggressive preeclampsia that fluid overload exacerbates the heart condition such that you get a cardiomyopathy that's associated with preeclampsia. Hmm. Not a cardiomyopathy that is kind of like the textbook that we learned about in residency that's the patient that's just fluid heart failure, but actually the, the preeclamptic process itself and the fluid overload puts a huge stress and strain on the heart and the heart muscle becomes very dysfunctional. So I see a lot of that. Thankfully, if it's usually associated with preeclampsia, you treat the preeclampsia, you treat the problem. And those moms tend to bounce back and get their cardiac function back. Whereas some of my true just straight cardiomyopathy patients may be walking around with an EF or ejection fraction of, you know, 20, 30%. Heart doesn't pump so well. 
Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting. We, we, and we see a lot of it, unfortunately. So, you know, we have lots of patients that have high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, all those chronic health complaints. If somebody is going to go see their fertility doctor and they're like, what can I do to make myself be set up for the best pregnancy possible? What, what would you advise those patients to do? Absolutely. So when it comes to the diabetic world, we like to see that hemoglobin A1C under six, ideally, if you can get to that, that will set up the best intrauterine environment for the developing fetus. What type of complications do you tend to see when it's greater than six? So we see more miscarriage. We see more congenital anomalies, meaning we see more heart defects. We definitely see defects with how the lower limbs kind of develop and fuse together or are not fused together. What are you meaning by that? So sometimes in moms who have really, really poorly controlled um, diabetes, the, the lower limbs, they almost look like a mermaid. Uh, they kind of, they fuse together and they, it's like you have one lower extremity instead of two. And that is definitely driven by what the maternal blood sugar is doing. We see just a lot of congenital anomalies that's associated with poorly controlled diabetes because basically the developing tissues, I mean, they really like a blood sugar that's down in the 90s to 100. So if you're having a blood sugar that's, you know, continually two, 300 range, that impacts what, what's happening. And we're also learning that there's all this kind of cellular programming that we don't even realize that's happening in there, those high blood sugar switches that are being flipped that may predispose this little one to developing diabetes themselves, chronic health issues, things like that. So if we have the luxury of time and they're coming to me as a preconception consult, I say definitely for the diabetics, we got to get that hemoglobin A1C um, down, ideally six or less. We want to make sure that they are up to date and have had like a recent echo. A lot of the type one diabetics, these people who have been living with this disease process since they've been a child, it can really wreak havoc on the vasculature throughout the entire maternal unit. So I like to see a baseline echo to make sure their heart is functioning as it should and they can take the stress and strain of pregnancy. I also like to make sure that they've had a recent eye exam because anyone who's been through labor knows that's a lot of pushing and straining. Diabetics can be predisposed to retinopathy. I have had moms who have burst blood vessels in their eyes and lost vision wow. um, because of the poorly controlled diabetes. So um, I know a lot of them are like, Dr. Ho, why are you sending me to an ophthalmologist? I'm like, but you know, my job is to take, uh, make sure that your whole person is okay. Yeah. When it comes to our chronic hypertensives, I think the number one thing is to get their blood pressure under control. We want to see that systolic under 160, the diastolic under 100. Um, and we try to stay away from certain blood pressure medications. Like if you know you're going to get pregnant, we don't want you on lisinopril because that can damage the fetal kidneys, things like that. And just try to optimize their, their medical regimen going into pregnancy. What about the patients who are kind of on the heavy side of things? What do you usually tell them? And what kind of weight do you really kind of get really worried about in terms of labor and delivery complications? Yeah, we have a huge problem with obesity here. I think I just had a patient that had a BMI of about 78. So what kind of height and weight roughly would that be? Yeah. So she was about five feet tall and close to 500 pounds. So um, it, it wasn't that 
unfortunately it wasn't stretched out over much. And so that can be an issue with having an increase in cesarean section and things like that. I have been a variety of weights in my life. And so I am very um, open and honest with my patients and I just level set and, and tell them, you know, weight loss, it's more about the absolute healthy habits and the lifestyle changes than any one radical diet that you could do. Um, I recommend a lot of Weight Watchers because I think that program works and it makes them more aware and accountable. I also try to get them started on some form of exercise. And, you know, I explained to them, you know, it doesn't have to be sexy. It it could be 15 minutes of walking in the morning, 15 minutes of walking in, in the evening. We are here in the Midwest, so we do have winters and bad weather and things like that. And I tell them, you know, if you go to like an indoor mall area, even a big super grocery store, you know, yeah. just, Costco, Sam's. <laughs> that be really expensive though. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, um, if they could start on that and, and get some of that weight off, every little bit helps. Some patients, you know, have been considering gastric bypass surgery and things like that. And And I think that that can be a huge help. I typically recommend waiting at least one year after any of the gastric bypass surgery to kind of let everything settle out, heal, depending on what they have done, whether it's gastric sleeve or some of the more aggressive, you know, Roux and Y type procedures. You you need about a year ideally after that. Um, And then if you have one of those procedures, then there is a little bit different monitoring of the, the different nutrients and so forth to make sure that Again, baby's getting everything that it needs and the mom is getting everything she needs. On that note, when we have, I mean, we all have lots of people who have had gastric sleeves, gastric bypasses, lots of gastric sleeves nowadays. How do we best serve them to get them all those micronutrients that they need that, and they can't swallow the typical prenatal that we're recommending for everybody else? Yeah. I'm a big fan of using just the gummy vitamins. I know in pregnancy, Nausea and vomiting, even if you've not had any of the the gastric manipulation, it's a huge thing. And it can be really hard to swallow those prenatals. They seem to make them inordinately large. I mean, size matters. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pill going down your throat. So I will lean a lot on on some of those things. And then as far as the different micronutrients, unfortunately, you just have to test. So And my moms who have had that, I will help work in conjunction with their OBs to make sure each trimester we're checking on certain vitamin levels and making sure that that's appropriate and they're getting what they need. Now, I will be honest, a lot of them, especially if they went through some of the weight loss centers and things like that, they really have it down to pat. And a lot of them will be coming to me already on this. But again, with just the changes in physiology from the pregnancy, we still check in on that stuff to make sure everything's on the up and up. But Gastric sleeves usually do great. The more aggressive ruin wise can have more complications for sure. More more issues with nutrient absorption. We don't see as many of those nowadays as we used to. Mm-mm. Mostly the bypass, like the sleeves and that variety. No. So well, thank you so much for coming to play with us, Shannon. If you had any any particular recommendations or you know words of advice for our patients who are you know, just about to make the transition from their REI office to to their OB or their MFM's office or people who are starting this process. Um, any words of advice, anything you see from your perspective that you want as many people as possible to know? You know, I would want them to know that, you know, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And um, we are there for them and we're happy to help them and take care of them. I guess one of the number one things I would 
want to tell them is, that, you know, I get a lot of patients that they have done the pre-implantation genetic testing. And so they have the feeling they're like, okay, so my baby's going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't rule out congenital anomalies. Yeah. We try and tell them that, Shannon. They just may not hear it. But we try and tell them that. It's it's not, a, <laughs> nothing's ever perfect. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, I do think it is super important um, that these patients get in with an MFM. I think it's important that they have a level two ultrasound and at least one growth ultrasound at 28 weeks to check in on growth and fluid and make sure everything's okay. And any of the other issues that crop up, whether it's a placenta previa or growth restriction or preterm labor, preterm delivery, I mean, that's our wheelhouse. That's what we do. So we're, we're here to help them. And it takes a village. Um, and it, that's okay. And whatever they're feeling is totally normal. And if you know, they, they are stressed or worried, we've literally probably seen it all. So um, <laughs> there, there's nothing that, that's too crazy that's uh, too out in left field for us to handle. Um, and again, our, our goal is we want moms to be happy and healthy and we want them to take home happy, healthy babies. That's awesome. Yay. Well, thank you so much for coming to um, hang out with us. It is a pleasure to see your sweet face and hear your voice. And, um, and we are very lucky that we, we got you to record this afternoon. So thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in and be sure to tune in next week for more and be sure to subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes. We, um, very much appreciate it. And we love to hear from you. And don't forget, you can also visit us on fertility.suncensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us. Or if you have specific questions um, that you have about fertility, we'd really love to answer them. And also any suggestions about segment ideas would be great too. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.